Que pasa, Mufasa? Bom dia, buongiorno, salam aleikum, and shalom. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Yeah, 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 we feeling good today around here, and that's because I finally got to host the one and only Rana Hashemi of No Drugs, K-N-O-W, Drugs, D-R-U-G-S. You know, those long stigmatized molecules that so many of us were and continue to be miseducated and misinformed about. No, 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 not on Rana's watch. Rana is at the vanguard of a new paradigm in drug education for the youth of the world. And we're going to get down to the nitty gritty of what that looks like shortly. But first, huge shout out to the Mycopreneur sponsors, Real Mushrooms, the gold standard and functional mushroom extracts. Dennis, what's a functional mushroom? Is that like a magic mushroom, man? Well, if you ask me, fam, all mushrooms are magic. But to be clear, functional mushrooms are types of mushrooms that are recognized for their health benefits above and beyond their nutritional value. I'm talking lion's mane, cordyceps, reishi, shiitake. You can find your functional mushroom supplements at Erewhon or at your local Whole Foods. But why not just cut out the middleman and tap in with www.realmushrooms.com for the pinnacle of quality in functional mushrooms. Made, of course, with 100% fruiting bodies. Yes, the mushroom part of the mushroom. Not the rest of the filler that so many different brands are throwing into their supplement stacks these days, trying to get you to buy everything but mushrooms. No, 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 fam. Not around here. Shout out real mushrooms. Ah, Sipping on some mushroom coffee here, courtesy of Everyday Dose Mushroom Coffee. I often get asked, Dennis, what's the best mushroom coffee brand? What do you think about this brand? What do you think about that brand? And let's put the matter to rest right now. I've got Everyday Dose in my cup, and that's your cue to check them out and see if it's the right move for you as well. And rounding out the trifecta of Mycopreneur Power Sponsors is MicroBoost functional mushrooms. M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. Longtime supporters of the Mycopreneur podcast and a brand which I wholeheartedly endorse and am very grateful to have been building and collaborating with for well over a year at this point. If you're a regular listener around these parts, please consider rating and reviewing the Mycopreneur podcast wherever you're listening. It takes 30 seconds and it is a huge, huge help to me. Thanks for being here. Alrighty then, without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Hey, Pasa Mufasa, what's up, everybody? We've got the one and only Rana Hashemi of No Drugs in the house today. What's up, Rana? How are things in Palo Alto today? It's a beautiful day, Dennis. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, we've been wanting to make this happen for a while. I've been a big fan of your work. And I just want to start off today by asking you, why is this domain of public education around drugs, specifically with teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, etc.? Why is this arena so underserved right now? And what can we do to change that? I think the reason why it's so underserved right now is that the old paradigm of just say no, of absence only did not work and it failed. And we have evidence to demonstrate that. And we also have just the societal impacts of an overdose crisis where adults don't know how to address or prevent overdoses, kind of a manifestation or reflection of the failures of how we've been thinking about drugs and talking about drugs with kids. And so I think there's a little bit of a paralysis now where we saw what we used to do not working, but we haven't sort of decided what to do next. We know like the harm reduction community has always sort of known how to deal with drugs. But in general, there's, I think from every sector of society, a general fear of drugs, of people who use drugs, of talking about drugs. And that goes all the way into the school system as well. And you have piloted an alternative harm reduction focused 
drug education program in Oakland Public Schools for over five years at this point. So can you prime us a little bit on some of the real world practicalities and on the ground experiences that you've had delivering drug education through a more harm reduction focused and trauma informed lens than was available to us when we grew up in the 90s or in the 80s or whatever with the just say no prohibition focused drug education? Sure. So I'll start by saying like where we are now is really different than where we are five years ago with sort of society's embracing of harm reduction for teens. I think the fentanyl and the overdose crisis has really shifted the authorities' perception on what we should be doing with kids in classrooms regarding how we talk about drugs. There are, at this point, five states have mandated harm reduction drug education within their jurisdictions. And they're sort of now figuring out, okay, what does that actually look like? And so just the like the term harm reduction for teens is now being embraced. When I first got started in this work, though, six years ago, my first job after school, after I graduated from undergrad, was running the tobacco use prevention education grant at Oakland Unified School District. And essentially, that grant gave me money to go into schools and address tobacco use and nicotine use. Um, the great thing about this grant, though, was that there was not much oversight on what I actually did, which is when I began experimenting with harm reduction. That was my plan all along. I knew like I didn't really have like a like a, a strong prevention drive. It was more like, OK, like here's this opportunity to have access to five schools where they are already trying to also address the school prison pipeline, where it was primarily black and brown youth that were getting caught at school with drugs. So they want me to address the equity piece, but they're also, they're not really looking at what I'm doing in the classrooms. And so this was sort of the origins of like safety first being implemented. And what I would do is just have honest conversations with kids about drugs, but it starts always with asking them what they know and think and believe. And like, this is just like the harm reduction needs to meet people where they're at. And so there's a, there's a common saying that if kids don't know that you care, they don't care what you think. So I had to show them that I really cared about them and then I'm not coming in here to preach at them, to tell them what I think and believe. So that's from like an attitude standpoint, non-judgmental, really curious, really compassionate, really acknowledging that there's multiple truths, there's multiple realities. And then it's, you know, abstinence, delaying. These are two really really effective strategies for staying safe, but there's also a lot more than that. And so based off the students in the classroom, you know, what challenges that they were going through, which I would learn by just first listening to them, I would provide safety information that I thought was relevant to them developmentally and experimentally. Um, when I really started to see things shift though, was not, I mean, these classes were a hit and you know, they were really well received by the students. And more and more students who were not in the class would actually come to my lectures. They would come to my conversations because they would hear from their friend that there's this drug lady at her school that actually lets you talk about drugs with them. And so I was like hitting this unmet need. And there was like a peer to peer um, sort of like advocacy system that was happening. Students would tell me like how their friends were not getting caught by the school, but they were struggling with substance use. Can I bring them to your group? 
there was, it got to a point where I had a critical mass of students who were using drugs, like kind of as, as my fan base. And I decided to like, you know, part of it was because I was kind of getting overwhelmed with the demand is I t- decided to dis- like distribute the workload. So I was like, hey, you like talking about drugs. You have a lot of experience with drugs. How about I train you to be peer educators and we send you into the ninth grade classes and you deliver this education. They were hyped. So they, we worked together to decide on sort of the agenda, the lesson plans. Um, and again, the reason why this ties back into harm reduction is harm reduction is always grassroots. It's always about putting power back into the people. And like this power shift like also is healing for these students. So um, we come up with a lesson plan. We can decide on the agenda. We decide like on our values for this conversation that it's not about promoting drug use. And actually like many of the students were able to admit that they wish that they had not used certain things like Juul, which they were now addicted to, or that like smoking so much weed got in the way of their love for skateboarding because they would lose coordination. And so it was a space for actually for them to be honest with themselves around um, you know, the harms of drug use. And the reason that they could be honest is because no one was reprimanding them. No one was shaming them. Like it didn't, like if they told me that there was something wrong with their use, I wouldn't use that against them to be like, see, that's why you shouldn't use. So the day of the presentation comes and these kids show up to school with literal like tuxes on. Like they were in like, like suit jackets. They were taking like button down shirts. I've never seen them so polished. They went from drug rugs, you know, those like, <laughs> like, you know, just loud and clear. I am a drug user. So, you know, this is my identity to like holding themselves up as role models. And what I think I saw happen with that is these kinds of spaces, harm reduction education is really not just about keeping people safe and alive. That's the bare minimum. It's about creating spaces of belonging within school. So kids who maybe are neurodivergent or a little bit on the fringes, interested in psychedelics, interested in drugs, they don't oftentimes feel they belong in math and science and football and sports. So I was creating this like safety net through the harm reduction program where we can plug these kids back into schools as experts of public health. And as they took on this identity, I started to see shifts, not just in attendance, in engagement and a sense of sort of connection. They were coming to school more. They were taking on more leadership roles. But downstream, they also cut back on problematic use, whether it was pills, nicotine, using every single day, setting their own goals because they had something to say yes to now. And that's what harm reduction drug education did for them. That is incredible. So thank you very much for that work first first and foremost. And I'm also fascinated in this intersection around social media and drug use, which of course that's where a lot of teenagers, a lot of adults are learning about different substances at the peer-to-peer level, which you referenced earlier, right? And I think part of that is because a lot of us have put up filters against against this top-down kind of paternal messaging, right? Of like, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And that's very much the drug education that I received. And at a certain point when I realized a lot of my very intelligent friends, creative, resourceful friends are cannabis users, it kind of threw my whole understanding of the drug universe out of whack. And I think there's a lot of benefit towards punching in on this middle ground as opposed to, well, I don't think you should probably be smoking weed all day, every day necessarily, but I also don't necessarily know that abstinence works for everyone. I would have benefited a lot personally if somebody would have come in and 
empathized with me and asked me why I was interested in cannabis and so on and so forth. Because what happens is once you recognize that maybe there's some half truths or potential misinformation that you were taught about drugs, well, then the pendulum swings to the other side for a lot of people. And you start thinking, well, I bet cocaine and I bet uh, this and that and the other are also very healthy for me, right? It's just like we don't have a good kind of hybridized, realistic, pragmatic program yet yet for drug education, which is where I think your work comes in and resonates with a lot of people. So this particular intersection of social media and drug use, can you tell us a little bit about some of your research into this and some of the concerns, some of the opportunities that are there and what are you working on in that arena right now? Yeah. So we know like some of the, my earlier research into like, why did like, what was the state of drug education and why did it fail? Like the main theory that they, you know, used to make sense of like, why abstinence only doesn't work is cognitive dissonance, which means that if two, if you're presented with two um, types of information and they are opposing, it causes a state of discomfort. And we want to resolve the discomfort by rejecting one information and coming to believe the other. So back in the day, you'd have a police officer come into your classroom they would tell you drugs are bad. They rotted your brain. Cannabis was the same as cocaine. And then you'd go out in your environment and eventually you would see that that was not true. Because at one point you encountered maybe a friend who was a drug user and you saw that they actually didn't seem to be all that bad. And we would resolve, oftentimes we resolve those inconsistencies by believing our peers rather than an authority figure in an adult. So I have always done my absolute best to make sure that my information is reality-based. Um, in 2019, I got tapped in to do a research study on what teens were exposed to online related to drugs. And at first I wasn't that interested in it because I'm just myself, not that online. But then I realized this is another form of reality that they are exposed to. And for me as a researcher, as a public educator, as someone who wants to deliver the best possible information for young people to be emitting this reality that they spend six to eight hours a day on was like, I was sort of like, that was a blind spot for me. So I started to look into it more. And the thing is, is you have, I mean, we've always, media has always been a form of sort of portraying an identity. Um, and we use our digital platforms, our social media accounts to portray a sense of who we are. And teenagers want it to appear mature, rebellious, to be doing something that's maybe outside of the fringes, not all, but definitely some. And drugs, one of my, my research study of like what young people were exposed to online and how they made sense of that information and how it maybe contrasted formal sources, we found that Teenagers were almost using drugs as like props to portray a certain identity, whether it was like blowing smoke, you know, showing the lights with the music like they were, you know, putting on a show. And um, what the problem is, is that when drug education in person is still telling you that, you know, you become addicted if you use drugs immediately, or they kind of portray these very serious consequences. But online, on demand, you're at home on a Saturday night, you're not invited to this party, or you didn't go to this party, you are seeing the party broadcasted on your phone, and it's the drugs that are being broadcasted because it's part of portraying this sense of like maturity um, that young people, you know, crave. We all we all sort of act a little bit older. 
Um, so there's that element of like, okay, wow, like it is no longer you discover a friend who uses drugs and they open up you to the drug world. And then the information is contrasting. It is on demand on your stories. Like you follow the people at your school. You don't even need to be in their inner circles to all of a sudden be receiving contrasting drug information. Um, and there's a huge opportunity here. Like that's, that's the, that's the pitfall of like, we're not matching up to their digital realities now, but the opportunity is we can meet kids where they're at, which is online and create a sort of drug education, you know, messages that align with their realities, both in person and online harm reduction being a possible solution for meeting them where they're at in terms of drugs are not all bad. There's benefits and risks. Um, and to be, you know, using the digital advertising systems that like Meta and Snapchat provide of like putting these messages side by side to the peer based messages so that we are, you know, so that there's trust in public health. I think the loss of faith and trust in public health and education systems is something that we're grappling with right now, because as you said, we haven't really allowed this new model to crystallize. We still have these vestigial limbs in a sense of, you know, the D.A.R.E. program being active in 75% of U.S. school districts. And going all the way back to the early 90s, there was a lot of criticism from within governmental agencies about the effectiveness of the D.A.R.E. program, yet they continue to receive funding. And, you know, they're still around, not just in the U.S., but in maybe a dozen countries, I believe in, you know, the Philippines and in Mexico, so on and so forth. So really like a lot of U.S. foreign policy is an extension of this drug war. And it's something I've been covering a little bit that a lot of people are starting to really question in earnest about we've had 50 years of a drug war, 50 plus years, and drugs are more popular than ever. And addiction rates are skyrocketing in a lot of capacities and a lot of senses. So what can we do to address this in a pragmatic and, and realistic way, right? There's this sense of pie in the sky thinking of like, yeah, we're just gonna just say no and that'll be enough right there. But clearly that doesn't seem to be working. So then a lot of people start questioning what, what do we actually do then, right? If the just say no prohibition approach doesn't work, what's the other angle that we could take? And I would argue that you're at the forefront or at the vanguard of helping to birth this new model into the world, which I think is hugely important. We've talked several times about how I was a high school teacher for a couple of years and I had a lot of personal experience over a decade plus with different drugs that I wasn't really in a position where I could openly share that with students because of the red tape and the sort of regulatory considerations at a high school, I was essentially told, you know, you don't want to give advice to someone in a sort of off the cuff manner and then have them go say, oh yeah, Dennis has done this. So therefore I should go do this. So I think it really is important that we can embed that in a, a well thought out program like you're doing now. What got you personally interested in wanting to pursue this project that's very important of drug education for youth and for high schoolers? Yeah, so I was, you know, a middle school student that was sort of like really like devouring a lot of like drug literature, you know, a lot of like the novels and, and, the, and the books that talked about drugs, whether it was Go Ask Alice or Crank or Speed. And there was something about this world that was just really fascinating to me and about just the alteration of consciousness. I didn't have, I didn't know that drugs did that. I, I didn't put those together. And, um, but I was just, you know, a curious kid um, had ADHD. And so I also was, you know, 
never really fully fitting into the, you know, status quo classroom. And I was really excited to like learn about drugs, like just from an intellectual standpoint, I'm like, what is weed? What does it look like? Where do people get it from? Like I never had sort of this like yearning of like, I'm going to go to high school and try drugs. But I was like, I'm going to go to high school and like learn about this thing that like I've seen in movies or in like popular literature and media. And I remember being so excited for drug education Um, and like hearing that we get drug education in your ninth grade health class. And so the day comes for drug ed and I like, I even had like a list, like I had questions of like, what does weed look like? Where do people get it from? What does it do to you? And the message that I got from the drug educator was drugs are bad. They'll destroy your brain and they'll kill you if you do them. Um, later on, the message became a little bit more sophisticated and, but still bullshit that ecstasy puts holes in your brains, but it was a still the same sort of, um, you know, conversation that like, you know, this is just point blank bad and you can avoid problems by just staying away. And so this is where like social media actually comes in and is interesting because we had Facebook when I was in high school, we didn't have Instagram yet. And so I was a ninth grader on Facebook, you know, stalking, you know, upperclassmen, like seeing like, what, are, what are people who are like cool in high school do. And I see that there's a lot of substance use in their photos, whether it's like alcohol bottles or, you know, like smoking out of a bong. And I'd see them, these people at school and I'm like, they're fine. They don't seem that they're all that bad. And so I essentially, like many teens, threw the baby out with the bathwater because they exaggerated to me the risk of drugs. Um, and they, you know, at some point just gave me point blank lies. I discredited any notion that drugs can be harmful or dangerous. And I set about experimenting with them without any sort of guidance, without any adults to turn to. And, you know, the friends that I was experimenting with were also sort of on the fringes of school as well and of like, you know, pro-social communities. And so we all sort of developed a little bit of a reckless relationship with um, cannabis, alcohol, and later on pills. Um, I was fortunate enough that I had many friends in my life that were actually sober bystanders that, you know, I would go to a party and I would black out within the first hour And my friends who were sober would arrive later and they would take care of me or, you know, my like, you know, angel of a boyfriend in high school that like I became his like, you know, he was my caretaker for most most weekends. And um, I think that my friends also didn't know how to communicate with me like, hey, like, I think that you have a reckless and unhealthy relationship with drugs. Like none of us sort of knew what was right and wrong because they told us don't go there. And we did. And now we had just no, like, what is the difference between experimentation and problematic use? We didn't know that. It was either you don't use or you're an addict, which we realized that binary wasn't real. And so for several years, I swam in this like really deep end of the pool with drugs. Um, And, you know, after like by my senior year, I'd experienced a couple overdoses, both of ecstasy, both went to the hospital for alcohol poisoning, and still was not really figuring out what I was doing wrong. And I was at this point, a little bit like psychologically dependent on drugs to feel a sense of identity and belonging. And so the idea of not doing drugs was not on the table for me. Like I couldn't just go abstinent because this is sort of what my sense of self was rooted in. Um, By the time I was 19 though, like I had escalated into using a lot of Xanax and, you know, more pills. And 
um, I started to, I crashed and burned essentially. And I, and I went to rehab and when I came out of rehab, I started to have friends, that earlier group of experimenters begin the, the first wave of overdoses started to hit each year, one after another, we began losing friends who were mixing pills with alcohol. This was pre fentanyl. It was when a lot of adolescents were dying from, you know, mixing downers. And I was so angry. Like I like hated myself. I hate, like, I was so angry at my friends. Why did we do this? We, we've caused ourselves, our families, our friends, so much suffering. And because of rehab, I'd internalized this idea that I just shouldn't have ever done drugs. And that was the problem because the people that I saw who truly delayed their use were able to bypass a lot of those early stage tragedies that we experienced. It all changed though, when I went and I transferred from community college to UC Berkeley. And I remember you know, thinking to myself, I'm going to get out of Los Angeles, which is where I grew up. I'm going to get away from all my degenerate friends. I'm going to the land of the nerds and the nerds are safe. Like I was just, I had experienced too much drug trauma by the, by the age of 19. And I get to UC Berkeley and I was cosplaying a nerd because I wasn't like fully there yet, but I was like, okay, a nerd on a Friday night is going to go to the library. So I go to the library and like, you know, I can't stay there past 10 p.m. Like that, that is just excessive. So I, I'm walking home and I'm passing the freshman dorms and there is about like 26 paramedics lining the block, like one after another, like lined up and kids are being wheeled into the, the, the ambulances. And I go up to one of the RAs and I'm like, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's alcohol poisoning, like the first Friday night. So the freshmen have gotten dropped off. Their parents have gone home. They've moved in. It's their first night of college. And everyone just got blackout drunk really quickly. And I'm seeing this and I'm just, I'm genuinely shocked because I didn't think Berkeley kids did drugs. The kids who went to high school from Berkeley were not using drugs with me. And like, this is sort of, there was the first time the hypocrisy of only bad kids use drugs was broken for me. And I started to see like week after week, there was a month after that, one of the, one of the undergraduates at school died from mixing drugs and fell asleep and no one was there to wake him up. So there was a death that happened on our, at one of the fraternities. And I just started to see just rampant substance misuse. And having been someone who had lived through that, I was like, wait, like this wasn't just a me thing. It wasn't just like a, an issue with my friends and I. Why were we systematically denied information on how to keep each other safe when no one was saying no to drugs? Whether like you were an early birder like myself at the age of 15 where you began experimenting or you're 18 or 19 going off to college, like we were all unprepared. And this was sort of my like moment of like turning my anger into a passion project of being like, I cannot, like, I cannot allow another child to be like having their, like hugging a porcelain toilet, like lost and confused about how to navigate this terrain because we just didn't teach them about dose and dosage, like really simply. Um, so yeah, I, it started off by, I created UC Berkeley's first student run drug education course and you know saw that it was really well received that people were craving this information and you know have, have been going at it since then amazing and that transition between high school to college for a lot of people a lot of us are utterly unprepared for living on our own for the freedom and for the substances that come across our paths alcohol being an obvious one you know it's not very 
culturally customary in the U.S. for underage people to drink with their families. It happens all the time in Europe and in Argentina. I had a friend from Chile who was a student at University of San Francisco where I went. And she said, when I was 14, my dad looked me in the eye and asked me if I had ever had a shot or drank liquor. I said, no. He goes, good. You're going to take your first shot with me. And I thought, well, <laughs> she, first of all, knew how to regulate her alcohol, unlike the rest of us. And I thought, what a sensible approach, right? Not necessarily that you have to start super early, but just that you could have that transparent conversation between a father and his daughter educating about, you know, best practices and alcohol consumption. A lot of us did not have that. So we end up undergrads, you know, first week, second week. I remember my first party I went to and they put a red solo cup in your hand. And like at one point, I drank a red solo cup full of cheap vodka very quickly because I literally did not know. I remember thinking, and this was prior to college, but I was like, how much of this stuff should I drink? It tastes horrible, but like, this is what people do. Never occurred to me that you just had to sip it. So I drank a red solo cup full of vodka and then woke up vomiting and, you know, it was that whole deal. Like I'm very fortunate. <laughs> I didn't just fall asleep and choke on my vomit. Right. So that sense of like, us being too afraid to educate people about alcohol or drugs because they're dangerous. Well, somebody else is going to educate us about them. Our peers are going to educate them. Another thing I learned from my time in San Francisco, right? A lot of substances were available and substances impact people's unique physiology and brain chemistry in different ways. And no one really teaches you this. And it took me forever to realize I don't really want to smoke a lot of weed. Like I, I can really enjoy cannabis, but you know, there's the peer pressure element of people being like, oh, you got to hit the blunt again. You got to do this again. And then I was incapacitated. And fortunately, you know, it's not the most dangerous drug arguably, but still like there's a lot of times when I probably would have acted differently in social settings or maybe been more responsible if I had learned that my tolerance for this substance is substantially less than what my friend is, you know, over there rolling joint after joint after joint. The same with alcohol, right? Some people make it look easy. Like I remember I had a, a blackout scenario with Jack Daniels one of my first weeks at college. And because the guy who bought the Jack Daniels pounds it regularly and knows his body and, you know, the same amount for him to turn up at a party was enough to get me blacked out, passed out in a stairwell. And so I think that's really important, right? That substances impact very you know, different people very differently. So now you're at Stanford, right? And you're in a postgraduate program. So I would imagine you've learned over the years kind of how to regulate your substance use and when and where and pick your times. What's that environment like being at Stanford and how more prepared, how better prepared are you now for navigating these kinds of scenarios than you were when you transferred to Berkeley years ago. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, first I'll say a couple of things. I always teach my kids, everybody is different. Like the drugs are interacting with our own unique physiology and every body is different. So it's like, you cannot look at someone else and see their experience and think that's gonna be the same as yours or try to match that. Um, and then there's another piece that you touched on earlier around that I wanna, I wanna hit on of like, you know, this is sort of the exposure therapy that you're talking about with like your Chilean friend's father or even just like the apps of the public trust. Um, there's a term for that we have in public health called the boomerang effect, where kids go off to college and then they let loose. And those who are like abstinent for like four years in high school, you know, kind of take on really excessive and reckless patterns with drinking and drug use. I think the boomerang effect is a reaction to misinformation. 
Because if you knew, like your Chilean friend, what it tasted like and the power of these substances, when you're exposed to them later on in maybe a more stimulating and overwhelming environment, you can stay grounded, you know, versus if you're exposed to drugs in a stimulating environment, like a, like a college party, and you've been told your whole life that this was actually bad and not fun and, you know, led to death and destruction, but you're seeing the, quite the opposite. You're going to boomerang in your, in your attitudes. And like my students come back from college and they tell me how well I prepared them for that. They don't have the boomerang effect because I didn't tell them dr drugs were bad and I didn't tell them drugs were good. I told them drugs were powerful and they affect everybody differently. And this sort of looking at these things as power objects that can be both medicine or poison is a more sustainable perspective to arm a kid with. And that there's certain times in your life where it's too powerful for you because you're still developing or there are certain times in your life that you can manage their power because you're grounded in your values and you know how to hold your boundaries. And so to your question now about what is my drug use like now at Stanford? <laughs> um, I really know myself and I have a life that I am deeply passionate about and a sense of purpose that gets me up every day that makes me feel so grateful for what I do. And so I still have a relationship with substances, but it's a relationship that is, you know, first and foremost, I have a relationship with myself that's really healthy and I won't let anything get in the way of my purpose and my, and my passion and in sort of my, you know, the gift with the contribution I want to make. And so that I think really regulates my like cravings to get high because I still do enjoy getting altered. Um, and so there's a lot of boundaries around my use where, you know, if I know that I have a, first of all, I will never get high on a week that I have like a drug ed talk with students just because, not because of any sort of hypocrisy, because I'm never like, I'm not lying to them about my own relationship, but because I know cannabis slows me down and I need to be sharp, especially with kids. So it's like, I know how drugs affect me I like know how I want to show up and I create boundaries around my use um, so that I can, you know, be the best version of myself. Um, and I think that these days I think I'm in more communities of like conscious drug use and intentional drug use. And so I don't remember the last time I was around someone who's like blacked out drunk. And like I have boundaries around friends and their drug use as well, where um, you know, if someone is using drugs in an unintentional way, I actually don't even feel like I'm present with you. And so I don't want to like all love, like you do you, but so that's kind of what it looks like today. And like, I model this for my students as well and, and demonstrating like, yeah, like when I'm in like a really busy time with work, like I am not, you know, consuming a substance like cannabis because of the impact that it will have on my hippocampus in memory. Yeah. Super important. I mean, I, I had to figure that out the hard way too, that, Cannabis use can be amazing and it affects different people in different ways, but there's also scenarios where I really enjoy using it. Like I like to use it to relax and help me sleep now. I think it's great, you know, but I'm not really getting high at 8 a.m. the way I used to, the wake and bake, right? And uh, that, again, it was just like, it was cool, right? Just like there's sort of the... Uh, anti-authority, anti-establishment, rebellious phase that a lot of people go through. And then I started learning more about all of these cultural icons and rock stars and like reading Keith Richards biography. But obviously that sets the 
bar very high, you know, when you're like, oh, this person's been doing huge amounts of all kinds of drugs. Like he's, he's fine. He's, he's a rock star, but it doesn't always translate all the time. And then now, of course, there's issues with safe supply. And that was not a consideration during my run with a lot of these substances. It wasn't even, you know, nobody was talking about it and it wasn't impacting people. But of course, I also went through a similar learning curve in a very unfortunate scenario where people in my community started dying because of pills and because of this and that, and essentially because of lack of education, because of polypharmacy, mixing substances in a very unintentional and misinformed or, or uneducated way. And yeah, once, you know, my roommate in 2012 passed away from an overdose and that was a big wake up call. You know, I used to sleep six feet away from this person and then, you know, was, you know, fortunately not in the same crowds he was in, but I just, it was terrible, right. To see that happen. And it's happened to a lot of people, unfortunately. And uh, I would love to ask you about now, what are you working on at Stanford right now? I have no idea, to be honest. I'm sure it's very exciting, but what are you currently working on at Stanford? So I feel like we have really solved the harm reduction content issue for drug education. Like what do we actually say to kids um, we have available? And it's packaged in a free, beautiful curriculum called Safety First that's available for schools and educators and even parents to access. And so it's just really like, there's just a lot of advocacy I'm still doing around that to make sure that people understand what harm reduction drug education is. But, you know, fentanyl really brought this to the spotlight and like it met the moment. And I'm pretty confident that we are going in the right direction in terms of um, what we actually say to kids. There's another issue that I feel really passionate about, which is how do we respond to kids who are using at school? Because right now, you know, the war on drugs infiltrated school in two ways with the education and with the policies. And we still have these residual drug war policies in schools. None of them is mandated by law, by the way. Zero tolerance policies are 90% of American schools, of US schools, and there's no law that requires this. The same way that there's no law that requires we teach kids abstinence only. It just became the status quo because of culture. So we know that zero tolerance doesn't work and we know that it disproportionately harms low income black and brown youth. And we know that it not only doesn't contribute to safer schools in terms of drug use, but it also leads to worse outcomes for the community like uh, the school to prison pipeline. But we don't actually know what does work instead. And what do we replace these zero tolerance policies with? Because the school does have uh, a need to kind of create a safe campus. And like, I do believe that if kids are getting high in both bathrooms and now in the classroom with their vape pens, passing out because of pills or alcohol on the schoolyard, that is not a safe campus. That is not a place where people can actually learn and develop and become themselves. So how do we sort of balance this desire to, or this need to stand up for you know, school and a place as a place for learning and not for a place of intoxication without ostracizing and pushing kids out. So that's the what I'm working on right now. And I have a hypothesis of what it is. And it's about building school belonging, it's building a sense of belonging. And we have a lot of correlational evidence that kids who feel more like they belong more in school or more connected to school reduce their on-campus substance use or who demonstrate less substance use overall. But the tricky thing is though, how do we create belonging for the kids who are already using drugs, which are the ones who are oftentimes most marginalized and stigmatized in educational communities. When you look at data on, on kids who are reporting drug use, their developmental supports, as in like 
Do you have an adult that you feel really connected to? Does school feel like a place where you feel like you are respected and valued are some of the lowest of any other demographic in that school? So I'm trying to, I'm working on an intervention that I'm piloting again with Oakland Unified School District, who's just been like the greatest community partner throughout this whole journey with me, um, where we are, um, yeah, we've created a psychological intervention that opens kids who have been caught using drugs up to adult relationships. So there's a, there's a student component where they do a series of activities that we are trying to, you know, make them more open and willing to talk to adults and building a relationship. But then there's also, and this is critical, an adult intervention, because it's not the kids that are the problem here. It's the biases that adults have towards students who use drugs that create this recursive dynamic of you are just a drug user. You're just an addict. You're just a bad kid. The name of the project is called More Than That. And I think it's, it just encapsulates what I'm trying to do, that every kid who uses drugs is so much more than that. And when we can see past the behavior and we can, when we can harness and cultivate their strengths, their hopes, their dreams, without it being conditional on abstinence, we can actually connect to these students and build relationships that create a sense of belonging. And my hope down the line, and I'm going to be entering a randomized control trial for this next year, I'm doing a proof of concept right now, my hope is that these relationships decrease on-campus substance use. And I'm able to demonstrate that there is a, we have a program for building belonging for students who use drugs that can replace zero tolerance policies and achieve the same sort of authoritarian goals of reduced campus drug use. Yeah, this zero tolerance policy, for example, I was pulled over my senior year of high school just riding shotgun with my friend driving and two friends in the back seat. And we were cutting class and going to get high at someone's house, as often happened those days. And my friend decided to pull over in the school neighborhood. And I kind of told him like, hey, we're going to a house. Why don't we just go to the house? It's like, yeah, I just want to rip a bowl real quick. Well, guess who rolls up right behind the car as soon as he takes the first hit? The whole car is hot box. He's passing it to me. It was, I was very fortunate because the cop literally came up to the window before I had taken a hit of this weed. And my friend got kicked out of school. And of course, you know, that altered his future in a huge way. And I was a split second away from being in that same position. But I was able to say, hey, I didn't smoke it and I didn't have any control. So essentially, I got a Saturday school out of it. But I just remember thinking like that one sort of arbitrary motion and decision impacted this guy's future. And then again, if, if you have that sense of like, I've been kicked out of school for using drugs, do you think that immediately this person's going to stop using drugs? No, they're probably going to buy into that. Um, this is all I am. I'm a, you know, a delinquent drug user, right? So that's just one uh, anecdote that came to mind. And then the other angle that's very dangerous about such a zero tolerance shaming approach is then people are incentivized to hide their drug use. And I think that's such a huge issue, right? It's not always the substance. In fact, it's often not the substances themselves that cause an issue. It's the context, the environment, when and where they're being used. And to segue into something you just mentioned, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about this school to prison pipeline, because yes, like there's lots of stories a lot of us know about a friend in high school or whatever who got in trouble and then they ended up getting arrested. And then once that happens and it's on your record, you know, the, the recidivism rate and just the whole stigma that comes with that makes it very hard to move away from that. It makes it harder to get a job, harder to get into college and so on and so forth. So what does that school to prison pipeline look like these days from your perspective? I mean, so much of it is 
like class-based because they're it really like more accurately it's like a poverty to prison pipeline because it's primarily it's kids who are in low-income communities that are getting suspended that are you know if we do not have ways of sort of feeling connection or ways of like meeting our needs in healthy ways we will latch on to unhealthy things and sometimes people have no alternative other than getting involved in um, maybe like drug distribution or just you know any types of economies that are unconventional in that sense. So there's, you know, for some people, an expulsion or from school can actually lead them to feel like school is not the place for them. And they have to rely on both economies and communities that are outside of school walls to meet their needs. And then for other students, you know, like it can lead them on a path of relying on substances more, um, because they don't feel that this school is, yeah, it all comes down to like when school becomes not a place for you, where are you going to connect and who are you going to bond with? Um, I mean, I, I think that it's the school of prison pipeline thing is a little bit self-explanatory where you get kicked out of school, school, you're no longer sort of motivated to do well in school and you just start get involved in illegal activity. And, you know, that's your way of both finding a sense of community and belonging, but also having like hope and purpose and meaning for your life. Um, and so we know that when we start to like tether, when we, I'll give you an example like this, that is like a little bit more, um, universal and relatable. One of my students, her boyfriend was smoking weed, not too much. He was on the football team at school and they caught him with weed. Um, they kicked him off the football team. He now smokes every single day. You know, he's still in school, but he's just getting high every single day. His substance use has increased because he lost that one connection to sports you know, so you can imagine that like that was getting kicked off, the, off, kicked off the school team. But you kick people out of school and you tell them you don't belong here because you're a threat to other students like you, they're going to embody that identity. They're not going to try to be like a role model in the community. They're not going to try because we've made it so difficult for them to show up in these healthier ways. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the school to prison pipeline is like one um just it's one consequence of kicking kids out of school, but it's that tethering of social connections of positive, healthy connections that leads people to rely more on the unhealthy connections. Yeah. So you're connected to a whole bunch of awesome organizations. I know you've done some work with SSDP students for sensible drug policy that I'm a big fan of. You've got no drugs, right? Which is your organization. And can you tell us about some of these organizations that you're collaborating with and for people who are interested in pursuing this kind of work or in supporting it, who are some of the most impactful organizations in the harm reduction drug education space right now? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean, all of this work has to be interdisciplinary and like, you know, we have to collaborate with various organizations. None of this I do alone. It's all community partners and or and advocacy organizations that have made this work possible for me. So I'll start by saying SSDP home base for students who are, are interested in harm reduction drug education. This is where I really got started. They sent me to my first conferences. They gave me the mentorship and the network that allowed me to sort of you know, learn from the OGs in the field about like what was done in the past and like sort of what are the gaps for the future that like young people can fit and fill in. Um, so there was like the foundational connection to the whole drug policy and harm reduction world through SSDP. Um, I'm very fortunate that, you know, these organizations like MAPS um, in their early days when it was like 10, 15 people, 
Um, one of my, some of my closest friends, like a shout out to Ismail Ali was working with them and schools who are more progressive would reach out to an organization like maps and be like, who are the, we want progressive drug education. And this was before we had safety first available. So maps would then connect them back to me just because my work was on their radar. So some of my first clients outside of OUSD was because these larger organizations like maps, drug policy Alliance, harm reduction coalition knew of my work. Um, because I just asked a lot of questions. I went to the conferences. I made myself known as someone who was passionate about this and they would divert the need in the community that would like go to these larger organizations back to me. Um, and, and then like, you know, getting involved with your local school district, because every school district has this need, you know, to address drug use, whether it's, they're going to be more focused on like fentanyl or they want broader drug education. And they need adults that are going to help them steer that transition from abstinence only and zero tolerance to a more compassionate and science-based approach. Um, and so you can just make yourself known as someone who, you know, is passionate and educated and committed to this cause. And, you know, doors open up. And the one thing that I really learned of doing this work is relationships have to come first. Like I couldn't go into Oakland and try to get the work that I want to get done without forming that relationship first and like spending truly the first couple months of just making myself known as someone who's going to be there. A lot of community organization communities are very protective of their, of their, of, of their community because they may have been, um, you know, used for research or used for program implementation. And then like, you know, the, the implementers would like leave and go away. So yeah, it's really just forming these like long-standing trusting relationships that can help you go through the experimentation phase because this really is we're experimenting with a new way of dealing with drugs and like having both the head organ like the head org drug policy harm reduction orgs know about you while also having your foot on the ground so you can be responsive to the needs is where I've situated myself um, and has been you know really helpful for me because. I am now able to be a conduit to MAPS, Drug Policy Alliance, SSDP, Harm Reduction Coalition of what are our, like, where are we missing gaps that the community is experiencing? And vice versa, how can I take what resources, knowledge, education materials that they have and bring it down to the community so that they have access to what is the latest and the greatest? I want to commend you on your academic approach and your boots on the ground, pragmatic connection to the community. I think that's something that's too often missing from academia as you have this sort of siloed off ivory tower conference circuit. And then you have the people who are using drugs. And from my perspective, psychedelics, right? There's a lot of psychedelic research happening in clinical trials, but that's not what real world use looks like, right? It's very different. So I do think there needs to be more of a bridge between these two worlds. And it's easy to sit around and speculate and come up with numbers and data, but how does that translate to a 18 year old or 16 year old on the ground who's navigating these very, you know, very extensive and discombobulated messaging around drugs, right? Uh, the cognitive dissonance, which you addressed earlier, which I, I still see that happening. I see a lot of cognitive dissonance in the world. And I think there's a lot of value in this uh, hybridized approach of, pulling from different disciplines and trying to not shame people, but to empower people to be the, the best version of themselves. I think most people who use drugs, it's because it's exciting. You know, it's, it's something we're, we're trying to tap into a part of ourselves that maybe 
we lost or, you know, the world doesn't value that sense. And there's something about getting high with your friends and experimenting that I have control over this. This is my decision. And yeah, so you know a lot more about this than I, but that's how I see it happening. Now, I feel like we've tapped into a lot of the stuff I wanted to talk to, but I want to leave the last few minutes for you to tell us about any of the ongoing projects that you haven't addressed yet and any of the exciting developments on the horizon in 2024 for yourself and for No Drugs as an organization. Um, okay, so one thing that I have, I, I touched on the the more than that project, which is, you know, a social belonging intervention that would hopefully be a replacement to failed zero tolerance policies. Um, but there's like another component of, you know, what I'm trying to do at Stanford that I think that is informed by the community, and I hope that would benefit the community, is to develop a new mindset about addiction and, and drug problems. Um, right now, we have this binary thinking of, again, this is residual from the drug war of like, you're either fine or you're an addict. And there's this whole spectrum in between, which we call treatment orphans, people who don't meet the clinical definition of substance use disorder, but are experiencing problems with their drug use and have a hard time reaching out for help because the current help system is abstinence-based, which a, doesn't work for them, and two, labels them as an addict. And so this sort of binary thinking of like, you either have a substance use disorder or you're totally fine is failing this huge population that is using drugs. And I'm, I'm, all my work is focused on adolescents. This is my, so when, I, when I'm talking about this, I mean people between the ages of 15 and 18 who are forming relationships with drugs and who are exhibiting, who are developing a problematic relationship with drugs where it's causing problems in their lives. Um, I think that I want to work on developing a new way of looking at problems as a problems doesn't mean that you're an addict and problems doesn't mean that you're bad to encourage more help seeking and more modification and adjustment of their use. Um, I remember being 18 years old, 17 years old, a senior in high school. And by my senior year of high school, there was a lot more students who were initiating to drug use. They got into college. It's second semester, senior year. There's a lot more partying happening. And so a lot of my friends who were sober for most of high school would come to these parties and they would drink and smoke. But I was blocking out every single time. I had hangovers for 24 hours afterwards. It got to a point um, where like I had blood in my stool, that there was like something internally wrong with me. And I didn't tell anybody, but one night I took my mom's car and I took myself to an AA meeting because I was like, and this is big for like an 18 year old to like be open to the fact that like, maybe I'm an addict. Like it took a lot of, of, of problems for me to get to that point to even just like be open to admitting that. So I go to this AA meeting and I sit through the whole thing and I sit and I do the whole like, hi, my name is Rana and I'm an, I'm an alcoholic and I'm powerless over my drug use. And I was in this meeting and there was, you know, just I remember it being like in a basement of some strip mall in West Hollywood. And I left that meeting telling myself, I'm not an addict, so therefore I must be fine. And I didn't tell anybody I went to this meeting because we have so much stigma towards addiction. We have this idea of what an addict is. And for a child to admit that they are all those things is way too high of a burden. But I did need help. I did need someone to sit down with me and be like, all right. Tell me about your use. Like, what are you doing? What's not working for you? Where do you want to go without sort of it being such a heavy lift of like abstinence being the only option? So I, I'm, I'm moving towards that direction around like, how do we educate teenagers about 
drug use and drug problems in a way that acknowledges more of the spectrum and, and breaks the binary of like good or bad. Um, aside from that, you know, uh, we're doing a lot of pushing out of safety first, making people aware that this curriculum exists. Stanford is, we've developed a training, a teacher training at Stanford that's available once a month online for schools to access. Uh, we offer technical support. So really like, you know, the infa we have created the, the support system and we need schools to kind of open up the infrastructure. And we're seeing that happen a lot with fentanyl. The last piece I want to mention is there's a lot of, again, attention on fentanyl. And a lot of, because of bereaved parents, a lot of advocacy going into fentanyl and overdose education. I really don't want us to stop there. Like fentanyl should just be the Trojan horse talking about all drugs in an open and honest way. And I'm concerned that when we kind of overemphasize the fentanyl thing, we miss the other substances that teens can also form a problematic relationship with that can limit their life opportunities or, you know, cause harm to themselves and their friends. So my, my role, I think, in this ecosystem is to kind of keep our eyes on the grand prize, which is honest conversations about all drugs, acknowledging the good and bad about all drugs, safety information about all drugs, and really making sure that like every kid at every school in this country has someone that they can talk to about drugs um, which I think goes into a lot of the teacher training and adult education that we're trying to do. Rana Hashemi, thanks for coming on Mycopreneur Podcast to have an honest conversation about all drugs. I'm a huge fan of your work and I love the organization, No Drugs, K-N-O-W, Drugs. Check them out. Thanks again. It's been lovely hosting you. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much, Dennis. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Mycopreneur Podcast.